Hey everybody, welcome to episode 75 of Literary Disco, Wolf in White Van. We'll begin this episode with a games-themed bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take a book down from our shelves about gaming or games. And then, based on listeners' recommendations, we will discuss the new novel by John Darnielle entitled Wolf in White Van, which I think I mispronounced his name and the name of the book at our last episode. His name is John Darnielle or Darnielle. I'm not sure. What do you guys think? Tucker told us. Yeah. And oh, well, we're fucked now. Well, Tucker, you figure it out. Pick whichever we'll one and make me say it John- correctly. <laughs> John Darnielle. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, John Darnielle. Right now, John Darn John Darnielle's like, all right, Ritter Strong. Yeah, exactly. Don't I'm, take the time to figure out my But name. I think I also added Wolf in a white van at the end of the last episode because it wasn't until right. I actually picked up the book that I realized it's Wolf in white van. Anyway, let me finish my intro. I am actor and okay. filmmaker Ryder Strong. <laughs> Joining me as always, essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, Mr. Strong. Uh, episode 75. This is 75. going very well already, yeah, might I might just great. say. Um, what what is episode seventy five? Is that a is there's like it's not a centennial. There, is there a term for that? Uh, for like seventy five years, there should be. I think there is, but yeah, it's well. I know for one thing that you get you get donuts if you are married this long, or you get um, you get you get donuts. What are you? I don't know. It, it's a really good gift if you're married for seventy five years. Maybe they give you pie. From who? There's that whole list of stuff that you get for various God, so anniversaries. Being married I've 75 never years, you would have to get married, like, I mean, at, at, you you'd know, have to get in married teens young. Or, up, yeah, by, right. unless you're like 20, then you have to be 95 years old. That's. My, oh my grandparents God. are about to celebrate their 70th anniversary. That's great. It's pretty awesome. Wow. They're, they were about, or they are about to? Are about to this summer. Wow. How old are they? They're in their, uh, my grandma's 89, I think, and my grandpa's 94. Wow. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Yeah. Good genes. The pastel stock is good. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to live forever, <laughs> bitches! <laughs> A couple things listeners should know, actually, as it relates to the pastel stock, is we talked about this off air just a moment ago, but Julia is seriously considering a run for Miss Hartford this year. <laughs> Um, did you want to talk think... about this, uh, Julia? Yeah, yeah. Um, my talent is going to be making that into an actual contest. Uh, <laughs> that's not a real thing. Uh, but, you know, I do a lot of stuff here. Because if you're going to live somewhere, why not conquer it like a crazy, vicious beast? That's kind of my theory. <laughs> Like like the chupacabra. Of Hartford. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I'll run for that. <laughs> chupacabra the, of Hartford. State chupacabra. The state myth. That's, a, that's not a bad idea. That's great. <laughs> uh, all right. So in honor of this incredibly happy book that we read, oh um, Wolf in White Van, which involves an element of games and gaming and actual game creation. Um, we thought we'd do a bookshelf revisit around gaming. So what did you guys come up with? Well, I didn't, um, I didn't really have a book about gaming, but I've got, I've got something sort of related, but the more important thing is yesterday I went to something all about gaming, which is, I went to the Long Beach Comic Expo, um, which is like Comic Con, but shrunk down. 
Um, so the, instead of 800,000 people, there was like 25,000 people there. And so I did a little panel there on crime writing with a, a couple other writers um, and uh, then spent the day wandering around and looking at stuff. And I was struck by a couple things. Number one, it doesn't have to be that you dress up like a comic book character or a movie character or anything. They're, they're just people there now just dressed up like the Big Lebowski. Oh, right. yeah. Like, I saw a guy dressed as the Big Lebowski with a lightsaber. Right. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> at first I thought, oh, is that the Liam Neeson Jedi? And then no, no, it was the, dude it was the Big Lebowski. With a lightsaber. That's um, cool. Yeah, what was his name? The dude? No, the Liam Neeson's Jedi. Oh, who cares? It was Phantom Menace. Oh, right. <laughs> Jesus. Those, those we're movies don't exist. We're going to waste precious time on <laughs> that. We're, we're done. We're, we've already moved on. I forgot but he was in those rate, movies. Yeah, so did I. Um, so I spent the day there, and I saw all sorts of cool stuff, and you know, just a ton of graphic novels and gaming stuff, and people just doing all that cosplay stuff. Yeah. Um, or is it cosplay? cosplay? You've never sounded more 75. I know. Here, here's what I don't get. And maybe the <laughs> listeners can explain it to me. Like, I saw, like, 50-year-old dudes, um, like, just in full costume with small children acting out scenes of stuff. It was like Edward Scissorhands and Boba Fett and Spider-Man were doing something together. Oh, yeah. And I... I didn't. I didn't know what was going Dude, on. Dude, it's so intense. Like the I, so, you know, I, I made a short film about Dungeons and Dragons, and then we went to all the right. sort of uh, comic themed conventions and film festivals because of that. So we ended up at Dragon Con, which I think, as far as my experience, Dragon Con is the best for cosplay. It was insane. Like the costumes people had, like you know, multiple people costumes, like four-part alien mm-hmm. costumes where somebody is, like, the tail, somebody else is the head, and, like, amazing looking. Like, they clearly spent so much time and energy and probably money, but certainly creativity on these costumes that were beautiful. And some of the best ones were kind of abstract. Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, you look at some people's costumes and they nail, like, Spider-Man or Batman, and they, right. they nail, like, a certain iteration that's just awesome like the texture of everything is exactly right but the coolest costumes for me were the ones that were just sort of like crazy steampunk lady with a a ship on her head like a giant galleon on her head and like just such detail work and you know creativity i i don't know man the cosplay thing like i i could never invest that much time in it but it's one of those things like i i've always loved dressing up for halloween like especially when i was a kid i loved it so i could see like if I lived in today's era as a teenager, I would totally, oh, yeah. totally do it. Oh, like, yeah. And these people were too. these people were having a great time. And I, it was awesome. It was cool to see everyone deeply invested in that and, and not afraid to, you know, let their geek out. Um, but I, I, I guess what I don't get is, so who are they doing the play for? Like, when they're acting out these elaborate scenes, right. it's for each other, or do they want an audience to watch? It's for themselves, man. Well, that's the thing. I think for a lot, a lot of them, it is like a, just a fun lack of inhibitions, and you know they're in a safe space yeah. with a lot of other geeks, yeah. and it's, it's a chan- just really cool. And I really respect it. It's a chance to sort of personally embody something you like too. You know what I mean? Like if you're into right. a superhero or a comic book, and you have your own vision or your own interpretation, like to embody it. Which, I mean, I think we should probably talk about in context of this book because I feel yeah. like. 
engaging with uh, imaginative worlds is such a theme of, of Wolf and White Van. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 at Dragon Con, it's like people take photos of each other. Like for somebody yeah, like me walking around without a costume, that. the whole point of being there is like, it's just an ongoing parade. You know, it's like a giant, because they take over four hotels for Dragon Con. So you're just walking from hotel to hotel and all you're doing is like, oh my God, can I take a photo with you? Can I take a photo with you? Right. Because you keep seeing such amazing costumes. You want to like have a record of it. So I think for, for some people, it's about that, like getting attention. Like they get to be a, a rock star for a day because they made a badass costume. Um, can I tell you, I lost my shit a little bit. Yeah. So this is, I, I, I'm going to sound like a fucking idiot, but it's true. So I'm walking through and I see a sign that says Land of the Lost, Holly. And the woman who played the little girl Holly no in way. Land of the Lost is sitting, wow. signing autographs of Marsha, Will, and Holly. Um, and I'm like, oh my God, that's Holly. And the person I was walking with was, was like, are you okay? And I was like, that's Holly from Marsha, Will, and Holly. She, the Chaka and the Slee Stacks. And I realized, Jesus, oh I my don't God. Know what I you just said. Uh, <laughs> what, what was Land of the Lost? I, I mean, I know of it, but it was a show about people that went back in time to dinosaurs. So what happens in Land of the Lost is Marsha, Will, and Holly, who are on a routine expedition, um, are on a boat. And as happens, there's an earthquake and a fissure in time opens up. Right. And the boat that they're on slips through the fissure in time, and they are dropped into the prehistoric era where they have to make do. Now, the thing, however, about this prehistoric era is that in addition to um, the evolutionarily incorrect depiction of life, be, be that as it may, <laughs> there was also and <laughs> some sort of strange alien thing called the Sleestacks, who had these portal machine things they were not from planet Earth, I don't believe. I think they are from another dimension, another planet. And then there was Chaka, who was some sort of proto-hominid. The little um, furry guy, right? The little furry guy, exactly. Um, who just walked around saying, Chaka. Um, so, and here, so here's a bit of trivia you'll like then. Yes. My stunt double, when I was 11 years old, was the guy who played Chaka. <gasps> who was a little person... <laughs> And an in proportion little person because when you're you know when you're stunt doubling kids you have to be a tiny person. So he right. was he was this great guy. His name was Bobby. God, what was Bobby's last name? I'll have to look this up on IMDb. Uh, but he was also he had been um, uh, the stunt double for Terminator Two right before he worked yeah. with me. So he was the, mm -hmm. he was the one doing all the like the motorcycle jumps for Edward right. Furlong. Edward Furlong. Yeah, and then he was my stunt double. And I remember him talking about Land of the Lost. That was the first time I heard about Land of the Lost, as he was like, "Yeah, I was chocolate in Land of the Lost." Oh, wow, man, I fucking that's love that some great show. trivia. All right, yeah. so uh, Todd, have you read so, any books? Well, so <laughs> like here's ever? here's the book I wanted to mention. So the book I wanted to mention um, is it's not about a game necessarily, but it's about a guy similar to the character in Wolf and White Van. Um, who has a traumatic experience and then goes about essentially trying to create his own world. Uh, in this case, it's a book called Remainder by Tom McCarthy. Uh, and in that book, um, this guy is hit by something that falls from the sky, and he is given uh, millions and millions of dollars by the British government, and he takes all of his millions of dollars and tries to recreate memories from his life. So he buys a building and he puts actors inside of it to try to recreate a, a particular time when he heard That's someone so playing the cool. piano. Yeah. It, it's an amazing book. And then it takes a dark turn because he starts to think about, well, what is reality? If I hire actors 
to go rob a bank, but they're not really robbing a bank. The people in the bank don't know that they're actors. What's the difference? And it's this, it, it spirals into this, you know, huge thing. Um, but it's a, a remarkable, amazing book by Tom McCarthy, who also wrote um, a book called C, which was very unusual. Um, I, I recommend it really highly. It was my favorite book of whatever year it came out. I think it was 2007 or 2008. Um, but it's 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 sort of similar in that way where people try to recreate the reality that they want using any means necessary to try to figure out what feeling is, you know, and that's that's what happens throughout Remainder. It's a great book. I recommend it highly. Cool. Great. Wow, that's great. Um, okay, I'll go. Uh, we decided on this theme, you know, two minutes before we recorded, and. I immediately don't let people into the my process. My first Julian. thought, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we've been working to say on this it was like show months for months in the making. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I my first thought was um, Tom Bissell's great book Extra Lives, um, which I think we've talked about before. But then I re- remembered mm-hmm. um, many years ago. But this is pre Bennington, and I was kind of like looking for ways to be more pretentious. I think uh, <laughs> I looked. <laughs> Yeah, and you couldn't grow a handlebar mustache. (laughs) I'm a woman. I can't do that. Um, So I looked up the uh, all the authors who had won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and I just started. And I should finish this someday. I wanted to read one book by every author that had won the Nobel Prize because I thought that would be interesting. And it's uh, a much more global perspective on literature than you know, say the Mm -hmm. Pulitzers or whatever. So um, I read this great book that I'm, I have no idea how popular it is, but it was fantastic. So it was, it's called The Master of Go by Yasunari Kawabata. And it's a Japanese book about this game Go, which is sort of like chess and sort of like Othello, but a really complex game. And Oh my God, I haven't played Othello <laughs> in 30 years. Oh my oh, God. Like I used to love that game. Yeah. Oh. Well, I love games. Um, in general, and this book is fantastic because it just depicts one long go match that's sort of historically based between um, uh, the master, who this is his retirement game, and a young up-and-coming go player. And every uh, chapter begins with a little diagram of the next move. So it teaches you Mm -hmm. how to play, and it's just like this long, slow um, Japanese experience. So I really love that book, and I'd love to reread it now that I'm thinking about it. I haven't thought about it in years, um, but it was really good. So The Master of Go. amazing. It's great. Master of Go. And this and, guy won the Nobel Prize. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1968, and he was the first Japanese author to receive the award. Huh. So um, hmm. the book is short. It's beautiful. It's got all kinds of philosophical musings, and it's about you know time and games and great book. Um, well, my 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 uh, bookshelf revisit has a similar title. It's called Masters of Doom, Ooh. and then the subtitle is How Two Guys Created an Empire and Transformed Pop Culture. It's by David Kushner. It's a nonfiction book that traces the history of the video game Doom. It actually goes back to Wolfenstein, really. It starts with Wolfenstein. But, of course, if you remember, Doom was the game in the the 90s. Um, Well, Wolfenstein was the first one. 
and, and then Doom was the the mega hit that followed up on the success of of um, Wolfenstein 3D, and both of those games were so revolutionary for a lot of reasons, um, mostly because of the way that they were marketed and sold. They were um, they were part of a company that, that these guys had started. These two figures that the the book is about, John Carmack and John Romero, Romero. and the two of them. Um, were a, a group of and with a group of other programmers started doing a mail by hmm. game service where they would send people computer discs in the mail that you could put onto your PC you know back then the people that had a PC were few and far between uh, in the late 80s early 90s and then they decided to offer Wolfenstein for free as a download and it's the first game that was downloadable on a mass scale and offered for free so you could play the first like nine levels for free and or maybe only the first level or so and then you paid a certain like a couple dollars to access the rest of it which is of course become the model of apps in general and video games uh you know where in in in-app purchase they were so far ahead of their time and it wolfenstein was a huge hit and then doom became an even huger hit and um, so it's interesting just historically to read about how they invented that process and how and then also there's this other level of they were it was the first first person shooter. So they right. created a three, 3D environment for the first time in a computer space. And that's John uh, Carmack is the programmer. And he's just this genius who was so far ahead of his time graphically and visually. And so he designed all the graphics. And then John Romero was sort of this like. rebellious geeky heavy metal listening D&D playing guy who created the worlds and those games Wolfenstein and Doom were incredibly violent and involved a lot of like sort of satanic uh, references and you know they were very creative but in that way that Wolf and White Van also touches on that sort of like 1980s into the 90s heavy metal inspired Dungeons and Dragons inspired creativity where it's like demons and um it was just sort of a i I don't really know how else to describe it but you know a conan inspired like kind of crazy world creation that um is really interesting sorcery sword and sorcery right Mm -hmm. it's it's like a fantasy world but it's not like tolkien fantasy like tolkien has like a safe kind of fantasy and even when you think about like um uh, Game of Thrones. It's a certain type of fantasy that has this like majestic beauty, and these are like fantasy worlds that are more dark and dangerous and more chaotic and sort of, like I said, Satan based or devil based, and Man, have references. Everything was to... Satan and the devil though. When, yeah, in the eighties. Like, well, it was. I think everything. I guess part of it was 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 you know the rise of the evangelical right that was going on at the same time. You know, like that. The, the, there was a real Christian fervor sweeping mm-hmm. the nation. And then in the mid eighties, you had the satanic panic period, which is amazing. If you've never read no, anything it, about it satanic panic, spend a couple minutes Googling that or hours and you will lose yourself down an incredible wormhole of satanic panic and, and past life or uh, repressed memory, mm-hmm. um, hypnosis, therapy uh, issues that went on in the eighties. It's an insane series of stories. Anyway, this book um, it, it's just fascinating because it's a huge part like it was a huge part of my childhood because I came of age playing these games like I was I guess 10 years old or 11 years old when 
and, and just getting into computers when Wolfenstein 3D became available and then Doom. And I was one of those kids who like, you know, I did play Dungeons and Dragons and I really jumped into these worlds and they were violent and parents groups really freaked out. And then of course Columbine happened in 99 and um, the, the big part of Masters of Doom is them dealing with the fallout from Columbine because it was immediately linked to the fact that these kids played this video game Doom, which is a game where you go around shooting people, demons, guards, things. So it's a fascinating book and, and it's really well written. And um, what, what, what the best part about it is it's sort of like um, the social network, the movie social network for Facebook, what that movie you know, the story that it told of Facebook, this is like that for an earlier generation of video game designers. And you get to see how their personal um, demons and uh, <laughs> relationships uh, influence the game design and influence the stories that they decided to tell and why they chose to tell them and how they reacted to Columbine and then how they ultimately fell apart. The relationship between John Carmack, who was the main uh, design brain behind the computer engine part of it, and then John Romero, who is the more creative uh, input story developer and how the two of them reached a point where they could no longer speak to each other and yet they had been best friends who had made millions of dollars together and created an empire it's a great great book you know recently i um i went to this video game company that's in santa monica cloud imperium games um which the the creator of it a guy named uh is it chris roberts he crowdfunded this new game for 60 million dollars and you got the 60 million dollars oh yeah i remember hearing about this yeah really quickly um but a friend of mine works there and i was interested in bringing out one of the game's writers to talk to my grad students to talk about writing for video games which he did and he was great um but what was fascinating was i went out there and i was there for you know a couple hours talking to these guys and they took me on a tour and i got to see everything from where they were writing the game to where they were just designing the smallest widget that's going to be in the corner of the game. Um, and all of the, there's this room that has a lot of pictures of all the ships that they're doing. And this is a, this is a, a first person game, but it's also a multiplayer world that they're designing. Um, and so I was just sort of sitting there and looking at the stuff and talking to these guys. And I was remembering, you know, how inconceivable all of this was when we were playing games when we were young, but here it is. It's this giant, organism of people and you know i went down to the customer service ex- section where they were talking to people who you know had questions about where their money was going from the crowdfunding all that was just happening sort of at that same time of that day and it really struck me that and i know we've talked about this before but this is just a narrative you know it's it's one person's idea of a game and then all of a sudden now that spoke of this idea of this ship game a space game is now hundreds of people working designing the smallest thing dealing with the people who've given the money um writing the story and this you know the script for the video game itself is something like three thousand pages long because right. you have yeah. to include have to all of the all choices, choices. Yeah. yeah which is fascinating because you're also then thinking about every spiraling idea that a person has this person makes x choice which causes them to go this way and think this, and here's the possibilities from that. And it's just an entirely different way of thinking about storytelling. It's no longer just go and shoot monster, because people want that emotional experience that goes along with it. Fine, shoot that monster, but now you've got to go deal with that shit. Yeah, exactly, which is amazing to me. It is so fascinating. I mean, it's still, it's just an incredible source of entertainment that I feel like I don't fully understand, but... Um, Greg, my husband, listeners, 
Um, he designs Lego video games, and those have the added challenge of they can't use any language because they're international. Right. So how do you oh, communicate action Story. and choice and cause and result without words? I mean, it's in, I mean, like I was beta testing. He's working on the oh man, the listeners are gonna love this. Um, he's working on. The free website Lego Jurassic Park video game right now. Oh, and, <laughs> listeners, how about your co-hosts? Yeah, and I was uh, I was beta testing it, and I could not figure out because I am an idiot that like you have to hold down the space bar to run, which is the simplest little thing. But you know, this game's for six year olds, so you know right. I'm a great I'm a great beta tester, and then. <laughs> They inserted this, like, image of, like, a raptor claw, like, hitting the space bar. So it's like, how do you do humor? How do you do emotions? How do you mm-hmm. do all of those things within this, while still giving people the feeling that you're offering them freedom and right. choice? Wow. Which, which is a lot of what this novel is about that yeah, we're going to talk about. Yeah, a lot of it. But it, it, it isn't fascinating that, so here's here are these things, these games. Um, whether they are online games or board games or they're Legos, which is a kind of gameplay in and of itself. And it creates all of these different kinds of narrative that come from it. You know, that's at the, at the base, it's still someone with an idea. Like it starts with someone. Mm-hmm. There's a person who says, oh, I'm interested in this. And then all of a sudden it becomes something that a person gets themselves personally involved with. And emotionally involved with that i mean that's a godlike power for the creator yeah. of these games which is pretty well, cool I, w- I would just like to say to the listeners you know it sounds like we're all really interested in this and i feel like my knowledge of books about gaming are very limited so if listeners have recommendations you know tweet us there's just, i would love to learn a lot more about this we might just need to get ourselves a video game writer on the show for an episode. We might just need to do yeah, it. Yeah, how about it? All right, it's, it's a deal. Let's we'll do, do it. it. Done. Well, stick around, and we'll be back soon to discuss Wolf and White Band. The best ever death metal band out of Denton was a couple of guys who'd been friends since grade school. One was named Cyrus, the other was Jeff, and they practiced twice a week in Jeff's bedroom. Best ever death metal band out of Denton Never settled on a name But the top three contenders After weeks of debate Were Satan's Fingers And the Killers And the Hospital Bombers Welcome back to Literary Disco Um, Now we know how to pronounce the author's name (laughs) Of the book that we are reading and discussing John Darneal. He is, uh, this is actually his first novel. Um, it was published last year and nominated for the National Book Award. But John Darneal uh, may be known to some of our listeners as the songwriter and lead singer of the band Mountain Goats. And I believe our producer Tucker is a fan Super of fan. Mountain Goats. Super fan. Let's hear, a little, um, let's hear a little San Bernardino from the Mountain Goats, Tucker. It's my personal favorite. Flaming swords may guard the Garden of Eden But we consulted maps from earlier days Dead languages on our tongue Holding on to our last home 
Anyway, I'm not a huge Mountain Goats fan. Um, I know that they're a really well-respected band, and he is a very well-respected lyricist, to the point where his actual author bio in the back of the book says he is one of the greatest lyricists of his generation, which made me wonder if he had written it himself. Um, but yeah, it is, he is widely considered wow, one of the best lyricists of his generation. Wow, that's it's kind of a weird thing to, to put in your author bio, yeah. right? Like, that was a little weird to no, encounter at the I end of the book. I don't think that's weird. It's his debut novel, and that's most of his writing experience to date. I don't think that's weird, and clearly somebody else wrote it. Well, frankly, after reading this incredible book, I am now... I'm ready to believe that he is the greatest lyricist of his generation, so I've got to start listening, because I thought this book was amazing. Like, I'm just not even going to hide that. I think this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. Uh, So what did you guys think? Hopefully you liked it, too. (laughs) Yeah, it was absolutely crushing. Just one of... it's, It's all of 210 pages, and you can read it in three hours, and it is an absolutely amazing, crushing, awesome book. It, Love this book. For a debut novel to be nominated for the National Book Award up against, you know, Marilyn Robinson and people like that, or the eventual winner, Phil Clay, you got to be really good. And it turns out, really fucking good. It's really good. I really good. felt this book for me had all of the things that I look for when I start a novel, which was... Well, when I read a novel, which is like, I read the first couple of pages, and then I read like two pages, and then I stopped and said to somebody, whoever was around, like, this book is going to be really good, which is one of the most fun experiences. And then in the middle, I don't even remember, oh, yes, I do remember when I started crying in the middle, not through any manipulation, just like, it was so shocking and what... You know, there's a lot of stuff going. There's a lot of stuff going on in the book. We'll get into it. Mm-hmm. But to to feel so emotional in the middle of the book mm-hmm. rather than at some huge climactic ending um, was a huge thing for me. And then the end is just as great as you're hoping it will yeah. be because it just marches toward this end that is slowly revealed throughout the book. And by the time you get to it, you know exactly. What's going to happen, which I was terrified would be so anti Well, not exactly what's going to happen. Well, let's, exactly. uh, let's actually exactly. clarify. We don't. If yeah. you are listening to this and you're interested in reading this book, we're not going to spoil the novel or the, the plot of the novel, uh, but a lot of reviews do. So do yourself a favor and don't Google this book and read the New York Times review or whoever else mentions within the first couple of sentences. They reveal what has happened to the central character, which we will leave... Uh, uh, as a mystery, yeah. because I think that's yeah. the effect, yes. that's the way we experienced it for the most part. Although I ended up finding out while I was reading the book, which which hurt the book experience, but still an amazing book. And I guess that's why the reviewers did it because it's so well written that it almost is besides the point. But it's better if you don't know. Well, we I should mention also that we're reading this book because of you guys, because listeners yes. mentioned it on the Goodreads page of Literary Disco. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, people. Thanks, listeners. Yeah, it was one of those suggestions that just kept popping up, and, and it seemed appropriate for us to read, and I'm really glad we did. Um, and, you know, the thing about the book, so we should give the the, the nominal plot. Yeah. So the the main story is that the main character is a, a man named Sean um, who has designed a by mail um, role-playing game, basically. Um, so 
These existed in the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, where you would play basically a text-based game by mailing things to the basically the dungeon master, as it were, mm-hmm. who would then send you your moves. Um, so back in the 80s, um, there was a lot of mail order stuff. In fact, in, in, in the book, uh, Darniel talks about this sort of subculture of mail order um, quite a bit. But people would, you know, he'd set up this world and the, the world is called Trace Italian. And you would go off on a journey. And so if you wanted to say, you know, turn left at the fork in the road, you would mail this character, Sean, a letter saying, I turn left at the fork in the road and I see X, Y, Z. And then he'd send you the the next move in the game. Um, So he runs this game and he conceived of the game while laying in the hospital after a traumatic incident that left him with half of a face, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the novel unfolds the story of people playing the game that Sean is interested in, as well as unwinding the mystery of what happened to Sean to get him to be missing half of his face. Um, that is the basic plot of the book. Um, but it is so much more than that. <laughs> um, it, and it's sort of hard to conceptualize uh, based on just that, but it's the, the narrative integrates both the gameplay and Sean talking about who he was as a teenager, who he is now, um, and then flashing back and forth in time. And it really takes on the um, the feeling of, of being in one of these games itself where you don't know what the next turn is going to bring you. Right. And just one more plot thing that um, is much heavier in the first part of the book and is really well done is his relationship with the people who play the games and... Uh, Oh God! It's I'm trying not to give too much away, but uh, a lawsuit a lot that of, arises. Yes, there's yeah, a, lawsuit a lawsuit that arises, that arises based on, through people playing his game. So it's got this other factor of his, you know, he's living this secluded life because he's so disfigured, and yet he's having this major impact on uh, the outside world. So, yeah, so, so basically, two of the players. Um, one of them, it's a young couple, one of them dies and the other one is left um, horribly injured because they decide to go play the game in real life, basically. Um, and, and like what we were talking about earlier with the, the satanic fever that, that gripped the nation in the 80s, um, the, the parents of the dead girl sue Sean um, to try to say that he was um, responsible. And you saw this a lot when, when Dungeons & Dragons was just starting out. Um, where someone would have been playing D&D and they'd go stab someone and someone would try to sue the makers of D&D. Or, more specifically, there were these uh, two kids who killed themselves after listening to a ton of Judas Priest um, and the family of these boys sued Judas Priest for, um, for you know, basically causing their, their kids to kill themselves. And, of course, right. Judas Priest was found not guilty of these things because you can't... A song can't force someone to kill themselves. One of the most um, famous and, um, examples of the D&D reaction to the whole satanic panic thing was a um, there was a college student who went into tunnels below his college and ended up killing himself. And people believed he was doing it because he was acting out Dungeons and Dragons because he had played D&D. Right. But of course he was 
suicidal and depressed and, you know, miserable in so many other ways. And the fact that he played D&D was completely um, just coincidental. But some author, I'm blanking on the name, uh, published a fictionalized version of this story where a kid and his friends play D&D and take it too seriously and kill themselves and kill each other. And then it was made into a TV movie. Starring right. um, Tom Hanks, a young Tom Hanks. No. Yes. Really? Yes. Oh it's my called God. Mazes and Monsters, I think. And it's a, it, it's basically a, you know, this part of the whole satanic panic rush was, you know, to, to vilify role playing games. Um, and I feel like we should maybe explain a little bit about role playing games because I'm, I, I've encountered this before, where I assume people know what, what, how a role playing game works, but it's actually kind of weird. Um, and so I'm not sure if everyone understands it, but. The way a role-playing game uh, functions in Dungeons and Dragons was the first and most famous role-playing game, but there are tons of variations. You know, there's games where you play vampires, where you play werewolves, where you play normal people that are spies. Or there's all kinds of games. But the the general gist of all the games is that one person is in control of the world. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, that is called the dungeon master. In other games, it's called the storyteller or whatever. And that's the person who sets the stage, as it were, and says, you're in a room, and it looks like this, and there's a door over here, or there's a treasure chest in the corner. And then the other people that are playing the game are the players, and they create characters. They get to invent whatever their character looks like or sounds like or whatever abilities their character has. And usually the, the creation of those characters involves a random element, rolling dice for how strong you are, rolling dice for how wise you are. And then you create these character sheets, which are attributes that your character has, skills they have, equipment they're carrying, whatever you want to create. And that's a chance for you to be creative as a player. You know, Name yourself whatever you want. Describe what you look like. And then you play within this sort of give and take with the Dungeon Master's world. So the Dungeon Master describes a situation or a scenario, and then you are a player. You are in control of your character within that with the other people that are playing with you. Um, and I think that's important to just describe because so much of this book I I read as 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 um, about that relationship between the inventor of a world or an imaginative space and then the people that decide to play within that imaginative space. Um, yeah. And I just think that that's endlessly fascinating. I mean, obviously, like, as somebody who played Dungeons & Dragons growing up, but also just as an artist, like, I feel like this book speaks so much to the creative process and the way that we send our art out into the world, whether that's a blog post or a, you know, a, a novel or a film or whatever we send this or a song that you write, you send this stuff out into the world and you hope it has an effect on people and how you engage with people's response to that creation. Um, I feel like that's at the crux of this book. And, um, and this, you know, this book sort of takes a dark chapter of that kind of relationship and, um, really uh makes it tragic but i think you know but i think it relates to anybody who's ever done anything you know creative or imaginative where you take your private imagination you know the the private fantasies that you have about how you feel about the fountain in your backyard which is one of the i mean that's what got me in this book is the beginning he starts talking about mm -hmm. his private fantasies as like a little boy and and how he would sort of create this whole world in his backyard and how he would become this sort of conan figure lord wizard master it's crazy but you really get drawn into his private imagination which is so creative and interesting and inspired by the music he's listening to and the, the comic books he's reading and um 
you know, I, for one, I really related to that. Like I totally got that. And I think everybody has at some point, especially when they were younger, created a private world or a private imagination. And in this case, you know, that has big ramifications later on in his life as he becomes disfigured and bedridden and he needs that sort of space um, to survive and, and God, I just love this book so much. I, I, I yeah. feel like I go on for Yeah, and for one aspect of it that, you know, I just absolutely loved is, so, you know, we're seeing it largely through his point of view and he says many times throughout the book, you know, there's, there's so many choices and there's so many possible avenues and they've been mapped out, you know, forever. Most of the book is being told from his, you know, you know, pretty late in his life. Um, and he says many times that it's impossible to win and not because it's unwinnable, but because it would take so long to make the amount of decisions necessary to get to this essentially safe haven, which is mm -hmm. so beautiful and, mm -hmm. and sad as you see these people try to play through this game and, you know, all the reasons they stop playing or, you know, him being so ethical and not wanting to help them or like there's no cheating. It's just so fascinating that there's this end that is in some ways inevitable and in mm -hmm. other ways impossible. And that mm. I just thought was just yeah. so mind blowing. You know, you never see anyone, including him, um, finish the game. And that's, that's just how the game is. That's not a spoiler. It's not like the goal of this book is everyone's trying to finish the game. They're just playing it. And I just couldn't get over that. I, I really loved it. And it really works well with the, um, with the real life storylines that are woven in as well. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think the, the thing about him creating this game that no one ever ends is that that's the essence of play is that if you get to the end, then no matter how many times you go back to it, it's, it's never as good the second time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he, he makes this point about cops and robbers, uh, in the book that's where so he talks point. about, um, you know, playing cops and robbers and why that was dissatisfying. And it's, you know, if you play a game that you can't reach the end, then you're always striving for something. There's always something new that's out there. And that makes it compelling. It's also clearly a metaphor for life uh, and, you know, for love and for relationships and all those things that you, you can't ever find perfect Nirvana because what's on the other side of Nirvana? You know, once you reach that place, then what? You you reach paradise and, you know, you're still sad about this or you're still worried about that or, you know, you're still hungry or you're still cold or whatever it is. There's there's no perfect place, you know, unless you're extraordinarily religious, in which case you believe after you die, you go to a place where you're constantly at peace, um, which is something that he basically talks about as well, which is... Yeah, I love the, all that stuff. I love the way he wove in alternative narratives. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, like he created this fictional game world that he knows is kind of absurd in his own imagination. And, and, and But it's a powerful narrative that he kind of needs to get him from the hospital to the rest of his life after this horrible incident that occurs when he's 17. But then he, he weaves in religion so effectively and and you get to see how for other people religion functions in the same way you know it's a narrative that makes sense of the world and um i thought that was so artfully done i also i think that this book is 
one of the darkest views of American culture I've read in a long time. Like, I feel like this book takes takes the the sort of teenage malaise of your average 1980s through 90s. I don't know. I'm assuming teenagers still feel similar to teenagers in the 80s and 90s. But he captures it in in a very real and profound way and is very, without having to be critical, uh, you know, for instance, the, the way the parents are treated in this book is very well done because he's not actively critical of his parents or of his lifestyle. You know, he, you know, he kind of has this average suburban life is the feeling you get when he was a teenager before the accident. But the way that, that, that you start to feel that he he was trapped in a certain way. It's very similar to The Stranger, actually, now that I think about it, which we read on this show. You know, Camus' The Stranger, there's this sense of, like, angst and existential misery in, in, in light of the choices that are open to him in American life and, and what, what he has access to culturally um, that, that gives him power, that makes him feel... Uh, powerful in the world the only options that make him feel powerful are this sort of magical fantasy conan satan worshiping worldview that that's the only thing that was available to him um i I, he, I thought that was he fascinating set, he sets his game it concludes in the middle of america basically right uh, kansas but you have to like roam all of america right right like, to win the yeah, game his characters players end up like you know, spending years, literally years, sending him postcards or letters saying, this is where I'm going, and it's mm-hmm. a dead end. And it's, just... it's basically like The Stand. Uh, right. The game is basically like The Stand. And there's this amazing chapter that just lists possible moves. Baja, California, Utah, Nevada, Kansas. You know, just over and over and over again. But the thing that's interesting, Ryder, to your point about the sort of suburban malaise is I think it's very wise where he said it. So the book takes place uh, in the Inland Empire of Southern mm-hmm. California, which is, for those of you not from Southern California, are these sort of freeway cities outside of Los Angeles, between Los Angeles and where I live in Palm Springs. Um, cities like Pomona and Montclair and Loma Linda, these places that you drive through to get to somewhere else. Um, but it's the hub of urban sprawl. There's 10 million people or something that live in these small towns, basically that just back up onto each other over and over again. So it's not like the satanic fervor that he talks about, you know, he, he watches uh, religious television late at night on his grandmother's TV that uh, he's inherited from her old black and white. And he sees these shows, you know, talking about backwards masking and songs. And it's not like he's in a small town in Kansas. He's living 30 minutes from Los Angeles, but it could be anywhere in the world Mm -hmm. because he's so far outside of the culture. Because when you're 16 or 17 years old and you're in a freeway town, you might as well be a billion miles away from somewhere else. It doesn't matter. You're still in a crappy little town where next door to you is a psychic. Um, which, you know, is, is pretty interesting. But I, I love that this, this thing, this world that he creates, he creates it from a place in middle America that he's not even in. He's creating it from post office boxes in Montclair, which is, you know, your average American city that is right next to what's supposed to be the most glamorous place on earth. You know, that. It's really deft in his he, story. Well, it's talk. so great it really because it's that. so suffocating without being um, 
Like, he's never sitting there saying, life is so suffocating in this stupid suburb. I'm so miserable. He's actually just suffocating. dealing. Yeah, he's just <laughs> suffocating. And, you know, when the book, the, 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 the narrative of the book actually takes you back to him at 17 more later. You know, so mm-hmm. you, it sort of works in reverse. You start out with him where he's narrating from, which I'm assuming is his 30s or 40s. and then it, But the book ends with him as a 17-year-old. And it's so profound because you end up feeling like at 17, he felt like a character in somebody else's game. Mm-hmm. You know, And you've been through this novel where he's been creating a game and allowing players only a certain set of choices and all these choices lead to dead ends. And without having to say it at all explicitly, you get the sense that at 17, he was realizing he was coming up against the expectations of his parents, these expectations mm-hmm. of American culture around him and the suburban life and the socioeconomic situation he was in and realizing that the choices were very limited and he was so unhappy with that. And and how he reacted to those, that sense of, of choice narrowing, um, you know, created the sort of monster but, that he But it's not, even, it's not even true, though, is the thing. And that's the problem with mm-hmm. being 17. Right. <laughs> you know, so yeah. for those of you listening out there, um, if you're 17 and you feel like your life is worthless and that it's never going to change, when you're 17, everything is present tense. Everything feels like the end of your life. Everything right. feels like it's never going to be better than it is at that moment. But of course it is. Of course it is. You're going to yeah. live another 70 years like... Uh, like Julia's grandparents. Um, and it's chemical. You know, when you're 17, you don't have the chemical makeup in your brain to understand these issues of plan Bs and plan Cs and that there's different roads that you can take, that the game is not fixed. Right. And that's that metaphor that he is dealing with. I, I don't think I mentioned this earlier but did i talk about this about oh i did about terror management um about all of our lives being terror management yes um but i saw this other speaker talking about the about who lives the longest on planet earth and she said something great which is that it's not people who are eternal optimists who live the longest it's people who are a little neurotic because people who are a little neurotic realize that there could be a saber-toothed tiger behind that bush Mm -hmm. and so they're going to step around and look at it before walking into it and they're going to have different paths. They're going to have an idea of plan B and C and D and what spokes out of plan B, C and D. And I was thinking about that so much while reading this because when you're 17, nothing seems possible, but everything really is. You just don't, you don't have it yet. You don't have it yet. That's the horror. That's the horror of it all. It is very hard to describe the feeling of freedom that comes with being an adult. And I mean, an adult at the time in my adult life right now with no kids or you know whatever it's it is really hard to imagine i I don't think i could have imagined when i was 17 any of the things that i'd be doing now let alone all of them Mm. you know right i just assumed i'd be modeling and that didn't turn out yeah (laughs) still i just assumed on the catwalk modeling the jew clothes that i wear Um, One thing, we've been talking very thematically, and I I just want to mention that this book also has really great scenes in it. You Mm -hmm. know, sometimes these kind of books can be too broad, and this is very restrained in that it's short and there's, you know, just enough of every kind of part of the narrative. You know, just enough gaming, just enough flashback, etc. And also incredibly fresh language. But the scenes are so good. What? 
incredibly fresh language. Like yes, he just yes. he he finds ways to describe like a hospital ceiling that makes a hospital ceiling really interesting to read mm-hmm. about for pages. I mean, multiple yeah. pages on just a hospital ceiling, and it's beautiful. I mean, he, he and he creates um, he describes internal mental states wonderfully. Like there's just these weird ways that he you know talks about how he feels like he talks about feeling anger like a snake that's dangling from above him mm-hmm. a poisonous snake and he's got to look directly at it to make sure it doesn't strike or i mean I, i'm losing the actual the specifics of that metaphor or that analogy but it's beautiful and it's like wow that is kind of the way it feels when you get really angry and you don't want to be too angry too quick it's really but there's, there's a scene in the book that I think is one of the most amazing scenes I've ever read. Um, I was going to say that too. I wonder if we're thinking the same it, one. It's got to be. So there's a scene in the book where Sean comes out of a convenience store and yeah, this is it. <laughs> there's two teenagers sitting in the back of a truck and they basically are like, dude, what the fuck happened to your face? And yeah. they have this amazing, brutally honest... Uh, dialogue with one another that seems so accurate and true to how people talk and the thoughts that people are having and it can only happen between people who don't yet have the social mores to know that you don't jump up and say dude what the fuck happened to your face oh i love that scene i thought that was one of the best scenes i'd ever read in my life Uh, and his own like the expression of his own joy at being spoken to was Mm -hmm. so it was just really well described so i actually have that scene ready to go because i wanted to read from it um so this is the last paragraph in the scene the scene has a lot of spoilers in it so i didn't want to read any of the meat of it but the end is um the the bros names are steve and kevin uh, Steve looked at Kevin and Kevin looked at Steve and they both said normal life while touching their beer cans together like wine glasses, only at waist level so that no car going past the tucked away between buildings little liquor store parking lot would be able to see them, you know, in case a cop went past. I understood this right away at some basic level without having to ask. And this was the source of my bliss, my total quiet contentment. That we were three people who, if it came down to it, could communicate with one another using only gestures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's really yeah. great. Yeah. That is really great. <laughs> <laughs> that I had to, I read that scene, I think, three times. Because I, for just from a creative standpoint, I thought, i got to see how he does this. Because the expectation is that it's going to be... Uh, these two bros that encounter him are going to be assholes and they're going to say horrible things and it's going to be like the elephant man. Um, But it's not because they're just decent human beings to each other. And that's a surprise. It's also such a striking scene because it's such a breath of fresh air in in a very claustrophobic novel. You know, you're in a novel where you're, you start to feel trapped inside a disfigured face. I mean, he's so good Mm -hmm. at capturing that feeling. It's either you're trapped in a memory um, or you're trapped in, you know, this sense of isolation that he feels from other people and the conversations are so guarded. And like, I think every single, I mean, the dialogue is really well written. Um, and the way he captures so much of the dialogue between like his parents talking to him once he's been disfigured, you know, it's all ellipses, it's all dashes because then no one can finish a, a sentence. And so when you get to that scene, it's like, oh, we're outside, we're in public, we're having a conversation with other people, and you actually feel the relief of that 
you know, on the page in a way that is palpable, um, which is clearly, uh, you know, just a great artistic reflection of what his character is going through, what the narrator is going through. It's, it's really, really totally. great writing. And I don't know if you guys remember this or if I just missed something earlier, but that scene is also where some of the first big reveals of what's right. going on um, happen. And it has to be that way. You know yeah. what I mean? If it was him like brooding over it in the dark of his room, that would be so forced and heavy. But coming out in this like liquor store parking lot at 830 in the morning... Where, by the way, he goes to buy candy because it's the only place where people don't stare at him because, oh, there's this freaking amazing line at the beginning of the scene. I forget. But it's uh, it's something like, <laughs> no one will look you in the eye at a liquor store at, you know, at 9 in the morning, right. you know, <laughs> even if you had a gun pointed at them. And right, they that, wouldn't look so up that's even where he shops. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just a great scene. And, and the, the reveal in that scene um, is literally just a single sentence that opens up and I won't, we won't say what it is, but you'll get to it yourself readers. He, the narrator says, answers a question. And you're like, uh, what did, what did he say? And, uh, yeah. that's the, another point where I had to go and read again to make sure I hadn't missed something. Um, because they asked him about this wound and he says something. Um, well, I guess we can say what he says. He says exit wound. And you're, I was like, exit wound? Yep. Amazing. It's great. All right. Well, I guess we're all unanimous on this book. I don't know if there's much more to uh, <laughs> to say yeah. other than go out and read it if you like uh, really, really well-written literature that will blow your mind. Not super uplifting, like a lot of our favorite books on this show, but... What but all about games, um, and it's it's fascinating. Yeah, you know? it, I want more books like this. I, I wish I had read this last year because it would have been one of my favorite books of last year, and I could have talked all about it all year long. But just <laughs> an absolutely remarkable book. Well, now you can do it this year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Let me tell everyone <laughs> to read Wolf in White Van. <laughs> and, and incidentally, there's, a, there's another book called The White Van by Patrick Hoffman that I bought first uh, that also looks quite good. <laughs> <laughs> but you haven't read it. Great. <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, thank you guys so much for yeah, recommending thanks, it. Thanks, listeners. Yeah. You guys had a good one. This is much better than Flowers in the Attic. And if you take away anything from this episode, it's listen to us and don't read the New York Times because that's well, the advice. Let's, let's not go that far. I think they've got good opinions sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we have the return of story songs. And we promise Todd will not be allowed to bring baseball songs onto the episode. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and interrupted every week by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. <laughs>